What constitutes a faithful gospel ministry? Or to put the question a little differently, how can you tell what kind of Christian teacher or preacher to follow, to give yourself to, to listen to? Or to put even a finer point on that question, how can you determine what kind of church you ought to look for if you're looking for a faithful gospel ministry? What are the characteristics of such a ministry? Though you may not have considered such questions very deeply over the course of your lifetime, I would suggest that there's never been a time in Christian history when those kinds of questions are more important than they are today. There's never been a time when the need for discernment in matters of Christian teaching and preaching and ministry have been more needed than today. The, the very numbers of Christian ministries that are available in our world today underscore this fact. A few years ago, the National Religious Broadcasters Association estimated that in the United States there are, quote, 2,400 Christian radio stations and about 100 full-power Christian television stations that send out the gospel message via Christian music, preaching, and teaching programs. Now that doesn't include the tens of thousands of churches and the thousands of those churches that also broadcast various aspects of their ministries. Are all such ministries trustworthy? Are any such ministries trustworthy? How can we know? How do we decide? Shouldn't we exercise discernment before we give our time, our energy, and our resources to support any Christian ministry? In Luke chapter 8, verse 18, Jesus tells his disciples that they are to take care how they hear. Be careful what you listen to. Be discerning what you let in. Fortunately, the Bible gives us instructions on how to do that. And nowhere are the characteristics of a faithful gospel ministry spelled out more clearly than in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1-6, through 6, which is our text for this morning. We started looking at this passage last week, and today we want to continue with it by considering the last two characteristics of a faithful gospel ministry that we find there. In 2 Corinthians, what we discover is the Apostle Paul had to write this letter to answer accusations that were made against him. Accusations that suggested he was not a trustworthy leader, a faithful gospel minister. Even though he himself had started that church, he spent 18 months among those people preaching and teaching. After he left, false teachers came in and began to disrupt the fellowship. And they did so by taking aim at Paul and began to suggest that he wasn't much of an apostle. And he really shouldn't be followed or heeded. I mean, after all, look at the way he changes his mind. Didn't he say he was going to come and he didn't come? Look at how unimpressive he is in his person, in his speech. Look at all the problems he's had in his life. You really think God is blessing that guy? Well, those kinds of accusations were being spread against Paul. And as we've already seen in our study through 2 Corinthians, and we will see yet again as we continue to make our way through it, Paul sets about in this letter 
carrying out the undesirable task of defending the legitimacy and authority of his ministry as an apostle. And in doing so, he gives to us characteristics of faithful gospel ministry and faithful gospel ministers. So last week in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, we begin to see how Paul lays out that a faithful gospel minister will tenaciously preach Jesus Christ with full submission to the Word of God. And we want to continue to look at that this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. If you're using one of the Bibles that's provided for you, that's found on page 965. 965. If you're not used to reading a Bible or, or looking at words on the pages of a Bible, the, the large numbers are chapter divisions and the small numbers are verse divisions and so we're going to start at the very first of chapter 4 verse 1 and read down through verse 6 follow along as i read the word of god therefore having this ministry by the mercy of god we do not lose heart but we have renounced disgraceful underhanded ways we refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with god's word but by the open statement of the truth we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God said, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. A faithful gospel minister will tenaciously preach Christ under the authority of God's word no matter what. In these verses, as I said last week, we find four characteristics of such faithful ministry last week we looked at the first two let me just simply review them with you quickly in verse one we see that a faithful gospel minister will persevere in that ministry by the mercy of god that's what paul says therefore having this ministry by the mercy of god we do not lose heart the nature of that ministry as he elaborated in chapter three was new covenant in its characteristics that is it was resting upon jesus christ what he came into the world to do by his life death and resurrection and knowing God's mercy put him in the ministry, Paul says, by that ministry, we don't lose heart. By that mercy, we don't lose heart. The second characteristic is that a faithful gospel minister will minister with integrity. That's verse 2. He's not going to engage in trickery or sleight of hand. He's not going to manipulate the Word of God or manipulate people for the sake of what he thinks would serve the Word of God. Rather, he's going to cut the Word of God straight. He's going to plainly openly declare what the word actually says so he won't tamper with god's word and as a result he'll be able to commend himself to every person's conscience as one who teaches that word well this morning we want to go on and look now at the third and fourth characteristics of a faithful gospel ministry and faithful gospel minister the third would be found in verse three and verse four and that is that he understands and he's not deterred by spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare. Look at those verses again. Paul says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers 
to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now, Paul seems to be directly addressing another accusation against him in verse 3. You notice the way he talks about our gospel. He says our gospel, which immediately raises the implication as opposed to their gospel. Evidently, these critics were pointing to Paul and what Paul taught and how Paul ministered and suggesting, well, look how few people are following him. I mean, look how few people here in Corinth actually believe the things that he has taught. And they were using that as another argument to undermine his credibility as an apostle. The apostle addresses that criticism directly, and he does so in terms of spiritual warfare. The gospel, he says, is veiled to some people. It's veiled to unbelievers. He's giving us a statement about what is true of people who are not trusting Jesus Christ. He's doing it in language that picks up on a theme that he began in chapter 3, verses 12 through 18, where he refers to the veil that covered Moses' face when Moses came down from the mountain speaking with God. The glory was so great being reflected in Moses that a veil had to be put over his face to keep the people from being just annihilated, unable to appreciate and receive that glory. And then he goes on in that third chapter, and he says even today, when Moses is read, when the Word of God is read, there's a veil over the hearts of people so that they do not comprehend, they do not recognize, they do not believe. Well, now Paul is broadening that out. And he says those to whom the gospel is hidden, it is hidden because of a veil. He is speaking about the condition of unbelievers. And in doing so, he makes a very important theological point. A point that is universally applicable to every person who is born in this world. Sin that affects every person who comes into the world results in a natural inability to believe the gospel. Sin results in inability to believe the gospel. That's the way everyone is born into the world. You see, we don't come into the world righteous. We don't come into the world spiritually neutral. David says, in sin did my mother conceive me. We come into the world as fallen, sinful creatures. And spiritual blindness keeps us from grasping spiritual truth. Paul had already written this in the first letter that he sent to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. Listen to what he says there. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. So that's indicative. They don't accept it. But then he says, he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. He's saying there's a spiritual inability that because of sin afflicts every person who comes into this world as a sinner. The gospel is veiled to those who do not believe. But then he goes on in this passage and he tells us the reason that the gospel is veiled to unbelievers. And the reason is because the devil has blinded them. This is the cause of their inability to believe. Spiritual blindness is not merely a consequence of the inertia of sin that afflicts all of us, but it is due to the activity of the devil. You see how Paul describes him? 
the God of this world. The God of this world. He's acknowledging that the true and living God has given a measure of leeway to the devil in this world to have a measure of authority to carry out his evil activity. The devil intentionally and strategically blinds people to spiritual truth. What has he done? We look at it again in that verse. To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Christ is the very image of God. To keep them from God and what God has done for us in Christ. Now that's the case. That's the condition of every person who does not believe the gospel. The devil has blinded them from seeing, understanding, laying hold of Jesus Christ. When a physically blind person doesn't appreciate a beautiful sunset, we don't blame the sunset, do we? They don't have the ability to perceive it. They're blinded to the realities. We don't assume the problem is with the sunset. In the same way, when people do not believe the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ, we must not conclude that the problem is with the gospel that is being proclaimed. The problem is in the hearts and minds of these people. Their hearts and minds have been veiled because the devil's blinded them to spiritual truth. Listen to the way that the 16th century Protestant reformer John Calvin put it. The blindness of unbelievers in no way detracts from the clearness of the gospel because the sun is no less resplendent because the blind do not perceive it. Gospel ministry is spiritual warfare. To preach the gospel as is done here every Sunday morning is to engage in spiritual warfare. We may not think about it like that. If we did think about it like that, I believe it would change the way we prepare and the way we enter into and how we conduct ourselves and respond to the Word when we gather week by week. But it is indeed spiritual warfare. See, I am here trying my best to understand and apply God's Word in a way that's understandable. I want to teach it as it really is. I don't want to mix it up. I don't want to make it confusing. I want to make it hard for you to understand. But there's an enemy among us who wants to do all of those things. He wants to distract you to think about what's for lunch today. He, may, he wants to cause you to drift off or to get bored or to lose train of thought or to just try to endure so that what the Word says, what God's actually revealed, doesn't get to you. It's warfare. This explains why people do not believe the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. There's a veil over their hearts by sin and the devil has blinded them spiritually. Now understanding this, believing this, remembering this will prevent us from giving up on the gospel when it seems like nobody is interested in it. That's what Paul was able to do when the critics began to accuse him. And those accusations may well have tempted him at points to give up. I mean, it is a temptation. You've experienced it if you've walked with Jesus very long. You teach the gospel, we preach the gospel, and it seems like nobody responds. It seems like so few are even interested in what we have to say. The temptation is, is 
to get discouraged and to wonder if there's something wrong with the message that we're communicating. And the question can come to mind. Maybe we ought to change the message just a little bit. Maybe we ought not talk about the hard truths that the Gospel reveals. Maybe we ought to try to soften them. Maybe we ought to round off those sharp edges. Maybe we should pull back and not speak truthfully about what it means to follow Christ as a real Christian in the true cost of discipleship. Maybe we ought to adjust the message just a little bit. We must resist every temptation to compromise what the Bible teaches about the way of salvation through Jesus Christ. Because it's only that truth, that gospel, that can save a person from sin and make him right with God. Brothers and sisters, what we must always remember is when we are sharing the gospel, when the gospel is being proclaimed, there is a veil between the gospel and the unbelieving mind and heart of the people who hear and that veil exists and that blindness exists because the God of this world has spiritually blinded them. So, what must we do along with preaching, proclaiming, sharing the gospel? We need to pray, right? We need to ask God to do what only He can do as we've sung this morning. That He would show Christ. That He would unveil the truth. That He would commune with people's hearts and minds in such a way that they will come to see and believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. God Himself must remove the veil. He must give sight. Now, my unbelieving friend, I'm so glad you're here. If you're not trusting Jesus, I'm glad that you're here. You're welcome here always when we gather like this. But I want to ask you a question. Do you understand what the Bible in this passage is saying about you? I mean, you may think... That your difficulties with Jesus and your unwillingness to believe Jesus rests upon the foundation that you're just convinced it's a bunch of myths. Fairy tales. On level with the Easter Bunny and Santa Claus. And that it's irrational, it's incoherent. And you just can't give yourself to it. If somebody can just show you the coherence of the message, the truth of the Bible, or what is claimed to be the truth of the Bible, then you'd believe. Well, that may be what you think. You see what the Bible says? There's a veil over your mind. You've been taken captive by a spiritual enemy. You just don't know it. He has blinded you to the truth. He is actively working even right now to keep you from seeing, understanding, and grasping the things that are true so that you will not turn from your way to Jesus Christ who is the Lord and Savior that you need. If that's true of you, and it is, then you should see yourself as a spiritual prisoner of war in this cosmic spiritual conflict. And you should pray and ask the Lord to set you free. If you're not trusting Jesus, young people, children, adults, have you ever asked God to open your eyes? To unveil your heart? To enable you to believe, to see the things that the Word of God teaches that other people profess to believe? The Gospel doesn't make sense to you? Would you pray and ask God to cause it to make sense to you? Would you honestly pray and seek the Lord on that level? 
I hope that you will, because that's a prayer that God loves to answer. And I have no hesitation in believing that God will answer that prayer for you as you humbly submit yourself to him and say, well, I don't understand all this, but based on these verses, these verses are true. I've become a prisoner. I'm a pawn of the God of this world who's keeping me from life and ask God to save you. Well, not only does Paul describe the condition of the people who don't believe the gospel, it's veiled to them, and attribute the cause of that veiling to the devil who blinds them. He goes on to talk about the consequences of such veiling and blindness. The consequences of spiritual death. The gospel is veiled, but verse 3 says it's veiled only to those who are perishing. Perishing, that's a very emphatic word. It means are being destroyed, who are being ruined spiritually. Those who don't grasp the good news of Jesus are people that are dying in their sin. They're under God's wrath. They're on the pathway to everlasting punishment without God. Those whose minds are blinded, verse 4 says, are being kept from seeing the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ. They're being inhibited. They're being prevented from seeing and believing the truth. The devil purposefully, intentionally, actively works to prevent us from grasping the gospel of Jesus. And he wants to prevent people from seeing the glory of Christ who's the image of God so that he can keep creatures made in that image from being reconciled to God. Again, the gospel ministry is warfare. If we remember this, then we'll remember that the stakes are infinitely high. And when we see little results from our labors, rather than becoming discouraged and giving up, we'll redouble our efforts to proclaim the gospel and to plead with God to give sight. I remember an old Fanny Crosby hymn that I grew up singing as a young boy, teenager, in church back in Texas. It understood and it emphasizes this point of the the desperate need for those who are perishing to be rescued. Let me just read to you some of the verses of that hymn. It says, rescue the perishing, care for the dying, snatch them in pity from sin in the grave, weep over the erring ones, lift up the fallen, tell them of Jesus, the mighty to save. Though they are slighting him, still he is waiting, waiting the penitent child to receive. Plead with them earnestly. Plead with them gently. He will forgive if they only believe. Down in the human heart, crushed by the tempter, feelings lie buried that grace can restore. Touched by a loving heart, awakened by kindness, cords that were broken will vibrate once more. Rescue the perishing. Duty demands it. Strength for thy labor the Lord will provide. Back to the narrow way, patiently wind them, Tell the poor wanderer a Savior has died. Rescue the perishing, care for the dying. Jesus is merciful. Jesus will save. Friend, this is true. If you're not trusting Jesus, you're perishing. You're on your way to eternity. Not only without God, but under the wrath of God. And it's that way because an enemy of your soul has blinded you. 
Father, do what only you can do. You don't open eyes. They won't be opened. You don't remove veils. They will not be removed. But today, I plead with you. Cause this truth to rest genuinely, powerfully upon all of us here. Father, you can do that. A faithful gospel minister understands and is not deterred by spiritual warfare. The last thing that Paul teaches us in this text about a faithful gospel ministry and gospel minister is that such a man preaches Christ, not himself. Last two verses, verses 5 and 6. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of of Jesus Christ. The message of a faithful gospel ministry is Jesus Christ is Lord. Now when Paul says we preach Christ as Lord, he's really just speaking shorthand for saying we preach the gospel of what God has done for sinners in Jesus Christ. We preach Jesus that's the earthly name given to the Son of God when He became a man. And so the incarnation of God. God became flesh. He became one of us. That's part of this gospel message that God has come down to us. That He has loved in such a way that He wasn't satisfied to be hands off, but He's entered into humanity. He's taken on flesh and blood in the person of His Son. Christ is the name that is given to Jesus, the title given to Him from the Old Testament word Messiah. It means anointed one. As the Old Testament makes plain through numerous prophecies, this anointed one was going to come into the world to save sinners by sacrificing Himself for their sin. And as Jesus has done that, by His death on the cross. So we see the fulfillment of His role as the Messiah, the Christ. Jesus Christ as Lord. Lord means God. Boss. Yahweh. When Jesus walked the earth, God was in flesh among us. And as God, He's done everything necessary to save us. He has conquered sin. He has conquered death. He has conquered hell. He has conquered the devil. And if there's any doubt about the Lordship of Jesus Christ, all we have to do is look at that empty tomb. He lives. He came back from the dead 2,000 years ago. Crucified, dead, buried. On the third day, rose again. Never to die again. He's alive today. He's Lord this is the one of whom Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2. Being found in human form, he humbled himself, become obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's true. Everyone here will see that it's true one day. The opportunity is given to all of us here now to see it as true today. And to bow and confess Christ is Lord. 
That's what a faithful gospel ministry proclaims. Jesus Christ is Lord. The Lordship of Christ over every area of life. Over every sphere of this created order. His provision being found in His Lordship for every need in life. His grace being found in His Lordship over all of our sin. Our message is not a set of rules. It's not a bunch of techniques and tips. Our message is a person. God's Son. Who came into the world to save sinners like you and me. That's what faithful gospel ministry proclaims. Paul says, in addition to proclaiming Christ, we do not proclaim ourselves. I think he puts that first because as a preacher, he knows the tendency, the temptation to preach ourselves. A faithful gospel ministry, however, is not about the one who ministers. The point is not about the person who's preaching. The point is the person who is preached. So a faithful gospel minister will therefore see himself as a slave. A slave. Paul speaks in the language that comes across to us in our English Standard Version as a servant, or plural servants, using that editorial plurality there, him and his co-workers, but specifically himself, as a servant. But the word behind servant carries with it more than just this idea of volunteering to fulfill a job. It carries with it the idea of being conscripted to a service. A slave. A bond slave. Someone who does not belong to himself. Paul says, I'm a slave to those I serve. Ourselves as your servants. He sees himself as obligated to the Corinthians. In a manner of speaking, he belongs to the Corinthians because he's God's man. And all of this is because of Jesus. See, servants for Jesus' sake. Now that's hardly the way that we think of leaders today, is it? We tend to look at leadership today and leaders, great leaders today, and we kind of measure them by the number of people following them, the number of people serving them. But in the way of Christ, the first will be last and the least will be the greatest. And the way of Christ, the one who is the leader is the servant of all. Here, Paul gives us this understanding of the kingdom of Christ and what it means to be a faithful minister in that kingdom. We know that the Corinthian church was already prone to a sort of hero worship because Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 rebuking them for their immaturity and how they were lining up behind different preachers. I follow Cephas. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. Paul rebukes them and he just tells them a couple of chapters later, you're acting like spiritual babies. It's not the way of spiritual growth. This type of hero worship has no place in faithful gospel ministry. And having addressed it in the first letter, now Paul is having to deal with it from a different angle because these so-called super apostles, as the latter part of the letter identifies them, have begun to come in and compare themselves to Paul, promoting themselves as more reliable, more trustworthy than he is. And Paul will have none of this. And rather than engaging them in a tit-for-tat about who's better, who's greater, Paul goes straight 
to the point, will not promote himself, and says, I'm your slave. I'm a slave for Jesus' sake. He understands that the reason God created him, called him, gifted him as he did, was so that Paul would faithfully proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. His life is not his own. He's a slave. Now normally when we think of slaves, we think that they are automatically, unconditionally obligated to do whatever the ones they are serving require of them or desire of them. But before we apply that to Paul's relationship to the Corinthians, we need to recognize that he is first and foremost a slave of Jesus Christ, as he regularly describes himself. Philippians 1.1, Titus 1.1, Romans 1.1. That's his favorite self-designation. And so he is a slave of Christ first and foremost, and because of that, he's a slave to the Corinthians. And so his relationship to the Corinthians is for the sake of, of Christ. What that means is, if he's going to serve them well, then he's going to have to do what Christ tells him to do for them that will be best for them and serve them according to the truth of Jesus. Which means he's going to have to be willing to set them straight whenever they have gone crooked. He's going to have to be willing to offend them if necessary for the sake of commending Christ and the way of Christ to them. If he's going to care for their souls properly, he's going to have to be willing to stand against them if they go astray for Christ's sake. Now that is simply a characteristic of any faithful gospel ministry. Brothers and sisters, that's what each one of us as followers of Jesus should aspire to in our own lives. To serve others for the sake of Jesus so that our marching orders come from him and our energies are expended on others. So Paul shows us that a faithful gospel minister preaches not himself, but Jesus Christ as Lord. And then in verse 6, he wraps all this up and he concludes it by stating that a minister does this with confidence in the Creator and Redeemer God. Do you see the way that he goes back to creation? Jared read for us earlier, opening words of the Bible, where God created the world, everything in it. And out of darkness spoke light. Paul draws upon that and he says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Here Paul is letting us in on how it is that he can tenaciously preach Christ even when he knows people born in sin have a veil over their hearts and have been spiritually blinded and cannot see the truth of the gospel. I mean, in one sense, it almost sounds like a fool's errand, doesn't it? Call upon people to repent and believe when spiritually they don't have the ability to repent and believe. Doesn't that seem utterly foolish? Well, Paul's confidence isn't in himself. It is, is not in his persuasive abilities. Paul's confidence is in the God who created all things. Who created the world out of nothing who looked into the chaos and darkness of the world he created and said, let there be light. And there was light. That God who spoke light into existence by the power of his word continues to speak spiritual light into existence in the darkness of men and women and children's hearts and minds that have been veiled and blinded by the devil. So Paul is confident in this, remembering his own conversion 
when he's on that road to Damascus where he's got papers in his hand to arrest Christians so that they will be persecuted. Some of them put to death. And on the way, the risen Christ appears to him with a blinding light. And Paul's world was rocked in the darkness in his own heart. Even though he had been religious, a religious leader, that darkness was expelled. And he came to see and believe the truth that is in Jesus. And with that truth, he was set free. By that truth, he came to know the Creator God who's the Redeemer through Jesus Christ. The only way that a physically blind person can be given physical sight is through a supernatural act. And the only way that a spiritually blind person can be given spiritual sight is through a miracle of grace. But the good news is that the God who created all things, created light out of darkness by the word of His power, creates spiritual light in darkness in blind people's hearts by that same powerful word. That's why we preach the word. We preach knowing this is the tool, this is the instrument God has chosen to use to open up blinded eyes, to unstop deaf ears, to remove veils from hearts. Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes from hearing, hearing through the word of Christ. That's why Paul kept preaching Christ. Do you see the beginning of verse 6? Four. Four. Do you see that word four? He said in verse 5, we proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. Verse 6, for because God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He says, I am like Ezekiel standing before the dry bones when there's no life and I'm preaching to dry bones. They're dead. They can't hear. They can't respond. But when the wind comes, when the Spirit comes, He gives life through the ministry of the Word. That's what we plead for. That's what we hope for. That's what we pray for. Every time we take the Gospel message and we commend it to someone, it's what goes on every time we meet like this on Sunday morning. The Word is true. And if the Word is accurately set forth, this Word has everything necessary to guide you to Christ to be made right with God. But you will not be so guided unless God Himself speaks light into your darkness. But if God says, let there be light, the scales fall off. You see it. You hear it. You believe it. And you follow Christ. Friend, if you came here this morning spiritually blinded, the prayer of many people for you is that you will not leave here today without spiritual sight. We are pleading with God who said, let light shine out of darkness to speak and call forth the light of the gospel to dawn on your benighted mind today. If you don't see it, confess that you don't see it. Humble yourself before God. See yourself as dependent upon Him. Ask Him to save you. There are many exit ramps on the faithful gospel ministry highway. And the temptation to take one of those ramps abounds. But a faithful gospel minister must resist each one and tenaciously continue to preach Christ in full submission to the Word of God no matter what. Christ is all we have. And Christ really is all we need. Christ has given us His Word. It is the Word of Christ, the message of Christ that God promises to bless to the salvation of sinners. 
And if spiritually blinded people are to receive sight, it will be through the good news of what God has done for us in Christ. So, brothers and sisters, let us resolve to be a church that believes this, that will never let go of this, that will do all that is within our power to stay true to this one message that we will proclaim. Jesus Christ as the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for giving us Your Word. We thank You for Christ. Thank You for not leaving us in darkness. Thank You for not leaving us captive to the devil. Thank You for removing the veil from our hearts and minds so that we can see Christ. I pray You would do that again today. Lord, people here this morning who are blinded by the devil, oh God, Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. And we pray that you would destroy his work of blinding people in this room today. Help us as your church to resolve never to deviate from proclaiming Jesus Christ as the Lord. Grant to us such faith by your spirit and your word for Jesus' sake.